Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Stolle of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. The podcast you are listening to is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com. That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and an ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, enjoy the show. Hi, this is Eddie Deason. You're listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall. I was Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory. Ha 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 ha. You are listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall on Realm of the Mist Entertainment. Hey, what's up, guys? Christopher Stolle back for another Breaking the Fourth Wall podcast. Guys, I'm really excited for this one because this one here is I get to sit down with a writer, director, actor, producer, and so many other things that I, during my research I have discovered that he has been involved with, uh, things that he has been a part of, things that he helped create, write, bring to the to the world that it's pretty much influenced majority of most of our childhoods or our entertainment experiences. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Carl Gottlieb. Carl, how are you doing today? Hello, hello. I'm fine, thank you. And yourself? Oh, I can't complain. I can't complain at all. But look, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cut the gristle and get right down to the bone with this one here. Sure. The first thing, looking at your IMDb and learning learning more about you and the things uh, the things that you've done, the first thing I've got to come into here that I that I I, I just have to bring it up because it it struck me so much was you were part of a comedy troupe. Yes, indeed. Uh, San Francisco satirical improvisational review called the Committee. Established in San Francisco in 1963. I was a stage manager and a director, and then I became an actor in 66. And when the show moved to Los Angeles in 68, I moved with it, and we opened at the Tiffany Theater in Los Angeles on the Sunset Strip. And from there, I got spotted by the Smothers Brothers and everybody else, and Bob Altman and uh, an agent named Mike Metavoy, who paired me with young Steven Spielberg. And that was the beginning of my big-time professional life. Was was that always the dream, to be an improvisational uh, comedian, to, to do uh, sketch comedies and all, like the Smothers Brothers, or for people uh, for people of uh, uh, more modern times, like the, the, the SNL, not ready for primetime players? Was that... No, not, not a dream. I mean, you know, I, I made a conscious decision. I graduated college. I graduated mid-year. I missed the June graduation because I had to make up two or three credits because I had, or nine credits because I had transferred. So I actually graduated in January, which is winter in Syracuse and dark and snowy and cold. There was no ceremony. So I just found myself one day on the street with no term papers to write, no dormitory to go to, and my hometown in New York beckoning to me. So I went back to New York. And I decided when I graduated college, I would, if at all possible, only work 
in the theater or in journalism or write, writing or in the theater. I'm not going to work as a bartender or a carpenter or a cab driver or any of those jobs. Right. I'm just going to be in show business. And luckily, one thing led to another. I went from one job, one little job to another, to a slightly bigger job. I hung lights and was a stage manager in Greenwich Village coffee houses in 1960, watching Bob Dylan come into town and Peter, Paul and Mary and that whole crowd. And then in 61, I was drafted. I went to the Army. 63, I got out of the Army and went to San Francisco and joined the committee as a stage manager. And all I can tell you is one thing led to another. Every job I had led to another job. What? So there was no it, dream. I was just working. It seems like a, it seems like a, a very short period of time that, that uh, you went from, uh, as you stated, uh, looking to, to work in, in show business from going back in New York, as you said, in the 60s, to uh, to, to getting drafted to, to Vietnam, to, to uh, the comedy troupe, to, be, like you said, being introduced to the Smothers Brothers and Spielberg. And it seems like a very short period of time, but it, did it feel like that at the time? Or was it, did it seem like it was just a natural progression of things just, as you were doing just, it? Just a natural progression. I went from one job to another. Uh, I was happy to be imp happy to make a living, and I was a pre-Vietnam veteran. I was in the Army '61 to '63. Okay, yes. I, uh, I got my I got my dates wrong, but <laughs> yeah. some, some some of the guys I was in the Army with, I ran into them, and they had, uh, after basic training in Fort Dix, New Jersey, I got sent to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and that's the home of the combat engineers. And a couple of guys I was in basic training with showed up at Fort Leonard Wood about six months, eight months later, they had been sent from Fort Dix, New Jersey to uh, Southeast Asia and Cambodia and Laos. And they were busy opening up the old Japanese roads that connected Cambodia and Laos to, to North Vietnam, or at that time, Vietnam, uh, French Indochina. You know, that, that they were already in rebellion against the French Anyway, we were already busy in Southeast Asia, but we didn't have a presence in Vietnam yet. Right. Anyway, wow. uh, I missed out on that. I got to be in the All-Army Entertainment Contest, and, I, uh, and from there I went to San Francisco, and that's when my professional life changed. Joined Actors' Equity, became a stage manager, became a director, went to New York in 65, Worked as a company manager on Broadway, off Broadway. I worked for a Broadway producer. Bought a motorcycle. <laughs> sold my, sold my first article to Esquire magazine for five hundred nineteen sixty five dollars. Not a bad, not a bad sale. No, nah, it's not, especially for the time. I, I'm and you rode a motorcycle. I love how you threw that in there. Um, the big thing. The big thing that I'm taking from this is it seems like even from the beginning, you always just had your mindset into you weren't looking to just do one thing. You weren't looking to be an actor or, or a writer or a director. You were looking to be an actor, a writer, and a director, and a stage performer, and uh, the, 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 the key thing being and uh, like always involved in something in form of show business. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Absolutely right. And, and my criteria for taking a job or even looking for a job was, have I done this before? 
And if I've done it before, I go, well, I've done that. What else is, you know, let me see what else there is out there. So that's how I went from being an actor to a, from a stage manager to being an actor, from an actor to being eventually a writer and director. I just, you know, I just got hired. I was, I was luckily, lucky I was, a, I was a good collaborator. So I worked with Steven Spielberg and Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin and Robin Williams. And I worked with a whole bunch of really good people. Pretty much the who's who of of yeah yeah of I Hollywood. Had, I had an argument with my. <laughs> I done a comedy called Caveman. I wrote, co-wrote, and directed, and I was arguing over some fine editorial point with the producers. We were in post-production. And they said, well, we don't think it's funny that way. And I kind of lost it. I said, excuse me. I have worked with every comic star in the business. I worked with Steve Martin, with Lily Tomlin, with Robin Williams, uh, uh, you know, Richard Pryor, um, Flip Wilson, uh, the Smothers Brothers, uh, Carol Burnett, all in the family, Bob Newhart. You know, excuse me, I know comedy. Right. You know, I know funny. Well, well, we're the producers. We can do what we want. Okay, but you're wrong. <laughs> and, of course, um, they realized it, and they put the, they recut the scene the way I cut it in the first place. <clears throat> but, you know, that uh, I was lucky. I worked, you know, I had good people to collaborate with. I had a very, very happy choice of collaborators. You know, they, they just... Circumstances hooked me up with a lot of people. With the Flip Wilson show, I, I after I worked on Jaws, I came back to L.A. and it was still a year to fill before the movie came out. So no, I was a screenwriter, but nobody knew it because the movie wasn't out, and I had to keep working. So I got a job writing uh, Flip Wilson specials for NBC. Okay. And the first one was produced by Lorne Michaels. This was before Saturday Night Live. Oh wow. So I worked with Lauren and Flip Wilson and Richard Pryor and Lily Tomlin and Peter Sellers were the guests on that first Flip Wilson special. Uh, and I, I remember talking with Lauren about you know what we were going to do next. And he said, well, i got to go to New York. I think I'm going to do a live show there. Do you want to come? I need a senior writer you know, to be kind of, a, kind of a head writer. The job that Herb Sargent got right. on Saturday Night Live. I was going to be Herb Sargent. He said, and uh, we'll get a job for Allison, who was my wife at the time, and, and she could be an associate producer. And I said, you know what? I've already written a feature film. Let's wait and see how that comes out. I'm doing another feature film. I was doing Which Way Is Up with Richard Pryor. Right. So I'll pass on New York. And then, of course, Saturday Night Live opened, and I, I could have been a part of it. And I thought about it. One of the few career decisions I thought about where I wonder what, what would my life have been like if I had gone to New York that year. But as it turns out, by 1975, all the Saturday Night Live people were coming, or by 1980, all the Saturday Night Live people had quit and were coming to L.A. And by that time, I had two feature films in the can. I was working, I was working with Steve Martin on The Jerk. So, you know, I made the right choice. But, you know, I always, it would have been a very different life if I had gone to New York. But I didn't, so... It worked out okay. That was that was there. There's a couple points I wanted to bring in, but that was uh, to 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 
at, at your stopping point here. Um, I definitely got to state that's something I would have thought of uh, myself with 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 uh, Jaws being out. Like I understand during from seventy four to seventy five, you're thinking about like the not not ready for t- primetime prayer players and uh, what could or could not have been. But once that movie released, and you're in the throes of working on which way is up. I, I've got to imagine, like, at that point, everything just kind of becomes a blur, especially with the unexpected success. And I say unexpected because I, I imagine in 1975, none of you guys really thought it would be the movie that it became. Like, no. I'm, I'm sure you all expected it to be a, a, a successful movie, but not necessarily a phenomenon that it became. We all thought it would be a pretty good summer popcorn movie, and then when September came, it would fade at the box office, and the world would go around... On his, about it, the world would go about his business, but then it opened, and it, there were, you know, there were two things. First of all, it was, you know, a surprisingly, well, it was the first Spielberg hit, right? Clear, it reflected his genius, and it was a marketing revolution because the guys at Universal, the executives, and Lou Wasserman and Sid Sheinberg, and the, the heads of publicity and marketing and distribution at Universal chose the widescreen release, which had never been done before. So in two ways, Jaws was groundbreaking. First, in its release pattern, which has become the standard release pattern for summer movies ever for the next 45 years. So that worked. And then the movie, of course, never the attendance never fell off. It just more and more people kept buying tickets. And it was the first time that kids were going multiple times. People were going to the movie five times. They would take their friends and see it again. So it just started breaking all records. And then it became the thing that it was. And nobody at the time planned for it, including Steve Spielberg and Universal Pictures. They thought it would be successful. They hoped it would be successful. But the thing about hits is we don't tell the audience what's a hit. They tell us. Right. You can buy an opening weekend with, you know, a $100 million ad campaign, but if the picture doesn't get word of mouth and people don't tell their friends, that's the end of it. But Jaws, for some reason, hit a note with everybody. Well, it, it is it is absolutely phenomenal, and I did I did promise you that we won't we won't spend all day on on Jaws. I'm there's plenty of interviews that you've done, plenty of documentaries that you've done, and including a book that you've written about Jaws that that people can get all that information. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drive the the, the boat here on that, but I do got to say that what you've created has been as far as Jaws is concerned or helped create was literally a, a phenomenon that's generational. Uh, to the point that I, like I told uh, uh, the, our publicist friend, uh, Steve Joyner, one day, as I told him, I just sat down my 11-year-old daughter to watch Jaws for the first time, and she absolutely loved it. Forget the fact that it, you know, it, it's rooted in 1975 and that the practical f- effects and, and all that may not be what she would normally see in, in modern style movies. She just absolutely adored the film and... You know, the same story I always tell everybody is uh, I saw Jaws at five years old and uh, the movie scared me so bad that a five year old would no longer take baths. He would only take showers because he was afraid the shark would come up through the drain. Like you guys, you guys created a primal fear that's just spanned generations. And I, I dare say would span beyond 
uh, generations to come. Um, it, it is literally one of the masterpieces. I literally put Jaws there. Uh, and who am I? I'm no critic. But uh, I literally put Jaws in the same veins as like uh, Sound of Music and, and uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. Just the masterpieces of cinema. Well, yeah, when, and if you correct for infra- inflation, it's still one of the top ten films of all time. Interesting how, how uh, uh, Spielberg has like six of the top ten pictures of Steven Spielberg films. But I imagine even with Spielberg, and this is by no means me belittling uh, uh, Mr. Spielberg in any way, shape, or form, but I got to imagine even a director is only as good as the people he surrounds himself with, his writers, his, his actors, his, you know, his, his film crew. It, like, everybody has a hand in it. And I think, you know, I, I do believe that Stephen, uh, at least from interviews, I've never talked to the man, but from interviews and, and, and documentaries I've watched with Stephen, he, he pretty much says it the exact same way, is uh, my success has always been my crew's success. Yeah, though that's modest of him. The fact is, there's only one Steven Spielberg. There's only a few directors in the history of movies who had equal influence. Nobody's had more influence. But, I mean, Steven is up there with D.W. Griffith and Billy Wilder and John Ford and Michael Curtiz, you know, just legendary directors uh, and producers uh, whose pictures, you know, like Gone with the Wind, we we all know. Sound of Music, you know, those, those are all pictures that the whole world went to see. Absolutely. Uh, and it's no accident that one guy made half of them. That's true. I, I can't I can't deny that either. Uh, but I definitely want to get back to, like, what you've done in, in your career. And there's so many of them that I could just list off, like, looking at your acting credits. You've been in uh, A Priest and Clueless. You've been uh, Dr. Magnus and Johnny Dangerously. You've been Iron Balls McGinty and The Jerk alongside Steve Martin. I mean, you know, you've appeared on Mork and Mindy and La- uh, Laverne and Shirley. Uh, as you stated, you've been... Uh, You've been a part of the Bob Newhart show and and the Smothers Brothers show, even written for George Burns. I mean, with with categorically with all the things that you have done, you've been Ugly John and and the original Mash movie. Is there one particular thing in general that kind of sticks out in your mind when you think back on your own career? You know, the Fish movie changed my life for better or worse. You know, it made you know, it may be me you know an icon by association. You know, there's uh, if you look at screenwriter ratings on IMDb, you know the the star meter ratings. Right. Every now and then I check my position, <laughs> and I don't think there's another writer ahead of me, except for Charlie Kaufman, who's really up there. Okay. Charlie Kaufman's star meter rating is in the 3000s which is like on camera talent uh, my star meter rating is like 8000 but it's ahead of a, it's ahead of Larry Gelbart and, and uh, you know a lot of other good writers so I'm happy as a writer I have pretty high visibility you do because yeah. again as we stated you know uh, you know I just pulled up your writer credits just to be able to kind of drive the point home as you as you stated earlier with caveman and of course 
with uh, Jaws 1, 2, and 3, whether written by or at least uh, screenplay writing by, I mean, The Jerk, The Jerk 2, Which Way Is Up. Uh, you did do a, a, a Muppet segment skit in 1975 for Saturday Night Live, it says. I don't think it was a Muppet sketch. It was one of those Albert Brooks short films that he did for Saturday Night Live. Okay. They, they have it marked as a Muppet segment. <laughs> it wasn't a Muppet segment. I was, it, it might have been... I was also in a, in a, uh, a film sketch. That, what was his name? Gary... There was a, a camera guy who used to make short films. Anyway, he, he made a short film, Blackout, that I was in. So I had a presence on Saturday Night Live, you know, a couple of times. Um, and, of course, I was friends with Moore, and I was friends with Belushi and Lorraine Newman and Dan Aykroyd. So, you know, I had a connection with the show and the original cast. That is awesome. And we stayed friends until Belushi died. And, you know, it was, just, it was, uh, it was like it was the same as my connection to rock and roll. You know, if you were in L.A. and actively mingling and hanging out you know you met the whole laurel canyon music crowd i knew crosby you know when crosby stills nash and young and Joni mitchell and jackson brown and the whole geffen geffen roberts stable of talent and asylum records and uh, all the san francisco bands the jefferson airplane and the star you know starship and uh, to a lesser degree the dead um you know it, it was uh well, now There's a lot of possible pollinization, a lot of, a lot of, of overlap, and my wife and I had a little house <clears throat> on Gardner Street in Hollywood. Okay. It's exactly like halfway between everything. It was if you went up the hill and into the hills, you went into Laurel Canyon, and everybody who lived in Laurel Canyon. If you went south of uh, Sunset Boulevard, you were in uh, the territory of recording studios. If you went uh, east, you wound up at the Hollywood Bowl or the Greek Theater, or in downtown Hollywood, where all the you know the record plant and Wally Heider and Sunset Sound, all the recording studios were. So everybody who was going to or coming from a hotel in Hollywood, in West Hollywood, like the like the um, Sunset Marquee or the um, in those days, the Continental Hyatt House and uh, the Tropicana. I mean, all these hotels and motels where the band stayed, they, people would stop at our house on the way to the gig or the way to the studio or come by the house after the studio to, to unwind. It was just a wonderfully fertile time. Everybody knew everybody else. See, you're speaking my language now because, uh, like, one of my, one of my all time as a musician myself, uh, many years ago, uh, one of my major influences was always uh, Jim Morrison of the Doors, and you're, you're speaking right around that era of yeah, music. No, I, that I, was, he was in residence at the uh, what was the motel, um, the one where Janice died. The, the uh, oh oh. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue, too. Yeah, right next to the Magic Castle. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, he was, uh, there was a, a, a lot of uh, Janice and Jim Morrison and some other people all, and the band lived at that motel while they were making, while they were in L.A. making records. It was, you know, what can I tell you? It was a, it was a great time. Everybody knew everybody else. 
I gotta I gotta ask with with having such a such a connection in the music scene, how 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 much would it have taken to switch you from uh, from the entertainment field and movie like writing and screenwriting and all that for movies and switching over to becoming say a lyric writer for maybe one of these now iconic bands back then, especially starting out. Was that um, ever something you thought about doing or or pursuing? Not, not really. I, I, I dabbled in lyrics a couple of times. I'm, I'm, uh, but uh, I remember. Uh, where, record business. No, I, I uh, when I when I left San Francisco and went to New York in the winter of '65, I had two job offers. Which is what you know why I left. I had you know I had a place to go. Right. One was Arthur Cantor, the Broadway producer who had produced the committee on Broadway, and the other was the uh, Albert Grossman office, which was managing Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary and James Cotton Blues Band, Paul Butterfield. You know, the, the Grossman had quite a collection of acts, and. I was going to, Peter, Paul, and Mary were looking for a road manager, so I had those two jobs, road manager for Peter, Paul, and Mary, maybe, or assistant to Broadway producer Arthur Cantor, maybe. So I got to New York, and it was the summer, and Mary got pregnant, so they were cutting back on their touring schedule, and they had trained the pilot and the co-pilot of their private plane that they flew to the gigs to do the mundane tasks of road managing, you know, count the gate, collect the money from the promoter, that kind of stuff. Okay. So they didn't need me. So I didn't, all of a sudden, I, did, I didn't have that job. So I took the job that I had was working for Arthur Cantor on Broadway. So, but if, if Mary hadn't been pregnant, if I had become road manager for Peter, Paul, and Mary, who knows? <laughs> My life would have been like, I would have been in rock and roll. Let's see. I'm 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 mesmerized too. That that you know, again with with the with the iconic credits that you have under your belt, and it just could have easily like like we just said, you could have been involved in the music industry instead. Or as you as you were just stating, you you also had connections to Broadway to to uh, to live plays as opposed to you know in theater as opposed to to film. Uh, have you ever? thought back and been like I wish I would have done more or has it always been like film first but you know I would love to do another play like I, I, I usually ask actors this a lot that, that do both you know is, is uh, which one do you prefer be in front of the camera or in front of the crowd I guess that's kind of the question I'm asking you <laughs> well, I, I, I actually got all excited last year a year and a half ago uh, a reputable team of composer lyricists who have had a Broadway show optioned the Jaws log for a Broadway musical. Wow. And if the pandemic hadn't come along, it would have been opening at the Seattle Rep in November. Wow. Uh, they wrote a whole musical based on my book. That's awesome. And it's still in the works. I mean, it may... It'll, when Broadway comes back, it will go to Broadway because uh, the Paper Mill Playhouse and the Seattle Rep are, are it's on their schedule. It's just not, there's no live theater. So that's kind of on hold because of the pandemic. But that's 
And I, I'm dying to do it because of the, if you looked at my extensive resume, the one thing I haven't really done that I want to do is Broadway, live theater. You know, five minutes, Mr. Gottlieb, actresses in the pit, you know. Right. And uh, this this is the closest I'll get to it. And, you know, I should live so long and the pandemic should be over and we should go back to going to the theater. That's going to be a year or two. Oh, wow. So, so, so it's still that far out, even with, yeah. with the pandemic. Yep. Wow. But still, that is absolutely all. I couldn't even imagine something I created uh, being adapted to, to, to film or to Broadway or, or something like that. I mean, I've written songs. I've written short stories. I would never imagine somebody taking that much interest into it. It, it, it must be a thrilling, thrilling experience. Like, I... Not, oh, well, I'll let, I'll let you know. You know, we haven't had it yet. It was fun <laughs> going to some of the audition, you know, the, the run-throughs and the uh, first read-through in New York with a full cast we went to. Uh, you know, I've been, Allison and I have, you know, we, we, the Jaws Log is community property with my ex-wife and we're good pals. So uh, uh, I got sick, but she was able to travel up to Seattle for the, previews they did up there in their in their experimental theater and uh uh i participated by zoom uh so uh no i you know it's it's all kind of on hold now but nobody's quitting the songwriters still working on it producers are putting together uh you know plans for uh, regional theater productions I know some people. I know some people. Some uh, some uh, uh, live stage performers and shows have have opted to do uh, Zoom conference performances. Would that be something that you would think uh, they would want to adapt to if, if this pandemic goes on well, as long as it seems to go? This is a show for a theater with a chorus and a you know a staging, and it's. It's a Broadway show. That's it's a Broadway musical. It needs so, the theater. It needs the theater. Absolutely. Well, I definitely want to dig in a little bit here, uh, uh, real quick on on the Jaws log. Uh, as you know, I I downloaded it from Amazon. I got it on my Kindle. I started reading it. Uh, I am fascinated with with the behind the scenes and everything that you're you're discussing. I'm literally in part one, so I I can't. Can't pretend like I know a whole lot about the book yet. However, I am curious about the inspiration behind even wanting to write a story about being behind the scenes of, of Jaws, even though we, we all know a lot of the I'll, mishaps and story uh, stories generally. I'll tell you how that came about. Absolutely. Uh, principal photography was finished, you know, three months and... $4 million over budget, but it was done, finally. But it was done in the winter of 74, 75. And it was going to be a summer picture, so they had all of spring to, to fine-tune it and preview it and, you know, polish it. And in those days, film merchandising was pretty primitive. I mean, there was a lunchbox and a T-shirt and a coffee mug, and that was about it. But Universal MCA had just hired a guy from New York who was in the publishing business and they decided they would like to in connection with the release of the film because it was going to get a substantial release 
they wanted to do a coffee table book with a lot of you know glossy pictures from the production, and the book was going to be in three parts. One by Steven Spielberg as the director, one by Zanuck and Brown as the producers, and one by Peter Benchley as the novelist. Okay. We were all a third of the book. And Stephen, who was very busy getting to work on Close Encounters, said, I really don't have time for it. Will you ghostwrite my third? <laughs> and I said, sure. You know, so I then Benchley got busy and was, you know, the and then uh, Zanuck and Brown had other stuff to do. So they came to me and said, well, everybody's dropping out. Can you do a book about the making of the movie? You were there. <laughs> and I said, yes, I was. You know, I was. I have, my, I have notes. I interviewed. So I went. I did a, a whirlwind uh, of interviews with the people who, uh, who, who knew stuff that I, did, that I did not know, you know, like... Uh, uh, like the uh, what's Carl Rizzo, the little guy who played, uh, 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 did some of the underwater sequences. I talked to Bob Maddie, who built the shark. I talked to everybody who I did. Every, every, nobody. And it had been on the set for three months while we made the movie. So everything that happened on the vineyard, I knew. Right. So I did a round of interviews to find everybody that wasn't on the vineyard, and I compiled my notes. And then I went away to a fat farm up in Napa Valley, and in between uh, you know, health food shakes and fasting, I wrote. The, I sat down with my notes and I wrote the book, <laughs> and sent it off to New York, and they printed it in a mass market paperback. It came out, I think. Ju the movie came out July sixteenth, I think, nineteen seventy-five, and my book was. The pub date was. No, June 16th was the uh, release date for Jaws, and July 2nd, I think, was the pub date of my book. So wow. it was in the stores and the supermarkets at the same time the movie was in the theaters, and it sold millions of copies. You know, the most money I made from Jaws was from the book. I got paid very little for writing. I got paid very little for acting. A pittance, when you think about it. But the book made me enough money to move to a big house and buy a car and you know i had a life after that i imagine the book is still a, a hot property today like you can walk into a local barnes and noble or as i did go go to amazon and and per, purchase and download to your kindle like is it is it still a hot seller today yeah i get royalty statements every you know twice a year with sales you know uh uh, yeah, it, it just it, it, it's not selling millions of copies like it used to, but it's a pretty steady seller. You know, it's, there's always a royalty statement twice a year that shows copies moving. So, I'm happy about that. Oh, that is absolutely amazing. Now, the the, the final question that I've got two final questions for you, and they're, they 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 kind of fall more under the generic terms than the non-generic terms, but I I, th I can't. I can't pass up the opportunity to ask them, sure. uh, especially to somebody somebody like you. Uh, the the question number one is a lot of the listeners, especially for for podcasters, you know, who who catch us on internet or or you know on some some podcasting platform. Um, 
nine times out of ten, they're holding dreams or aspirations of, of film, writing, directing, producing, whatever. Well, and, and with somebody with as much of a lineage and as much of a career as you have had, you know I'd be remiss and, and, and kind of irresponsible to my listeners if I did not ask the questions, what advice would you give uh, these young up-and-comers that you wish you had when you were starting out? Well, I made my own advice. I followed my own advice, which was always to keep working. You know, take every job that comes along that's connected with what you want to do. You know, I didn't take, like I said, I didn't become a cab driver or, you know, part-time journalist. Uh, I only worked in, uh, in the theater or writing or writing about the theater. And when I look back at my high school yearbook, I thought I wanted to be in uh, copywriter and advertising. I mean, I, I was always a word guy. Right. That was always my strong suit. Words, I knew them. So if you're a writer, number one, get used to the fact that you will be unemployed most of your life. <laughs> no, you will. I mean, it's just, just the nature of it. And, uh, you know, Whenever you have a choice of jobs and one involves writing and one doesn't, take the job that involves writing, even if it doesn't pay as much. Right. Just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. And don't stop. And when you face writer's block, you have to punch your way through it. You just keep writing. You know, write laundry lists, write uh, recipes, write uh, letters to old friends, write Facebook entries. Uh, which wasn't available 30 years ago. Right. But just, just keep writing. Never stop writing. And and but with the hope, but not the expectation that you're going to be successful. See, I find that interesting as a as a as a songwriter. Um, there's oh. many times I've I've hit writer's block, and and I never once thought even mundane writing, as you said, of writing a you know the grocery list or or you know writing a letter to my mother might have helped punch through that writer's block. That's that's an interesting thing I've never once thought of. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, you heard it here first. Just writing. <laughs> you know, uh, Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing, which is very helpful to writers. Okay. Stephen King being one of our, mo one of our most prolific writers. Never heard of him. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he, he's... He's one of those guys who can't not write. I mean, he wakes up in the morning, he's got to write a thousand words. That's all there is to it. And it, the, the beauty part of that is after 10 or 20 or 30 years, you've got a body of work that's incredible. That's oh, ridiculous. That's two kinds of writers, by the way, habitual and deadline. Stephen King is a habitual writer. Agatha Christie, uh, Georgia Simenon, uh, the... the John Grisham, you know, and all, all those guys. They just they, they just write all the time. And then there's writer, deadline writers, writers like me, who only write when we get paid. Right. And then there's no and there's no greater stimulus than you know, running out of money and going shit. I don't I don't write this thing or something. I'm not going to get paid, so I better start. I better, better start. <laughs> I described the process once as making ever-decreasing concentric circles around the keyboard until there's no place else left to go. Because writing itself is solitary, lonely, and painful. 
Nobody enjoys it, except maybe Stephen King. But, you know, it's it's not fun. With as many so, books as he puts out a year, i got to imagine he enjoys it in some way. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw put it best. Somebody said, Mr. Shaw, do you like writing? And Shaw replied, I like having written. That makes writing, sense. You know, like I said, writing is painful and lonely. Uh, when you're done, you've got something, and that's the good part of it. Um, unlike actors who have to have a stage or a film to, to showcase their, their work, a writer, you know, you've always got a stack of paper with your words on it. And if nobody reads it today, they'll read it tomorrow, and then maybe they'll read it a year from now. Maybe somebody will find it in the bathroom and say, hey, we should produce this. It happens. So just you know, keep writing, keep putting the scripts out there. Get your scripts into the hands of anybody who will read them. And sooner or later, somebody will say, I want to do this. Or, I don't want to do this, but I want you to work on something with me that's like this. Right. And that's the same thing. That's, that's how you get to collaborate. That is awesome. So, yeah, the word, words from one of the masters themselves. Just keep plugging at it. Keep writing, folks. If that's your if that's your deal, then don't ever give up on it. Even as, as, he, as he even taught me, even if you're writing a laundry list. Just write it. <laughs> Keep tapping on those keys. That's it. And then the uh, the second question I've got to ask, uh, with uh, especially with COVID down and everything else, what is uh, in store for the future for uh, Mr. Carl Gottlieb? Any any plans or besides the, the the Jaws log the musical? Any any future plans or things that you'd like to talk about? Well, you know, I have I have a half a dozen scripts that I've written over the years that, you know, about half or four of them I got paid for, two of them I wrote on spec. Um, I'd like to place them somewhere. I mean, nobody, not many people are financing movies right now because it's such a, you know, okay. because of the pandemic. But I'd like to see one, of, one or more of my scripts get made. I'd like to get hired to write another script. I'm old. I'm 82 years old, so you know, I've got a good maybe 10 or 15 years left in me if nothing else breaks, like my heart did last year. Uh, I say breaks. I had, a heart, I had a heart attack, right? Right, of course. I had a heart break. I just had a heart attack. Anyway, but I, you know, I recovered from that. And I'm frailer now at my age than I was a year ago. But with, uh, you know, paying attention to rehab and regaining my faculties, uh, pretty soon I'll be able to go out and take meetings and sit with people and maybe even collaborate on a movie. I'm not, I don't think I'm up for directing. I don't think I can stand the physical demands of directing. What it about, what about um, cameo appearance uh, in front of the camera? Oh, yeah. If somebody wants to... Uh, if somebody wants to hire me as an actor, you know, bearded fellow of a certain indeterminate age, I'm available. You know, hey, out there, you want Carl Gottlieb to act in your movie? Just give me a call. Acting is the best job of all. Is it? Because I've always been scared of it. No, no, no. You just go in. You, you, they give you. They put you in a trailer. They give you your wardrobe. They send you to makeup. You go to the set. You meet the other actors. You meet the director. You say your words. You go back to your trailer. They come and get you when they need you again. And then when you're done, you're done. Then you go home. You don't have to worry about it. You don't worry about the marketing. You don't worry about what happens to your performance. You don't worry about the editing. 
that's in other people's hands. I mean, I'm talking about my my kind of acting, which is day player, supporting player. Right. If I was a co-star or a star of a feature or a series, that would be different. But I don't see that in the cards. I might be a second banana on a series, right? I could play the Peter Boyle part in Everybody Loves Raymond, maybe. <laughs> That'd be kind of neat. The Jerry Pilt Stiller part in, in uh, Seinfeld. No, but that's, no, that's a long shot. So, uh, act, you know, acting is the simplest. And in, in many ways, the most rewarding because you have a public face. Well, and that you don't have to wear a tie to a restaurant. I'll tell you what that that is. I, I I'm now going to be keeping an eye out because I know you're going to show up on a scene now. Not not for my show, but just you're you're gonna you're gonna show up somewhere very soon. Once everything gets back, once the world gets back into some semblance of order, I, I, your, I know you're going to break back out. From your lips to God's ears. That's it. From my lips to God's ears. If he's paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make a liar out of me. <laughs> She's paying attention. Uh, but uh Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh I, I've had a blast. I hope my listeners have had a blast. If there's any questions I did not ask that the listeners might want to hear, it, what it would be the best way to uh be able to get those questions to you. Um have them write you and then you can you know put them cut and paste them all into a single document, send them to me and I'll answer them or we'll meet again and talk about them or whatever. However is best. Absolutely. I'm available to you on Facebook and email. So Awesome. That that is absolutely great. And again, the Jaws log, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on, you know, pretty much any of the digital downloads. You can find it on Barnes & Noble or barnesandnoble.com. Published by Harper Harper Collins. This is a UK edition. There are foreign editions. So wherever you are, you can find a copy of the Jaws Log. I urge you to buy it and read it. And it'll answer a lot of these same questions you'll see. Absolutely. I'm I'm reading it now. Like I said, I, I purchased it. I sat down to read it. I just started, you know, don't shoot me. I just started reading it, but I am reading it. Uh so by the time the next time we talk, I'll have read it. <laughs> Be able to give uh uh, give give better insight to it. Um, Don't flip to the, to the back to the end notes because they they elaborate quite fully. They elaborate on the original text because in the uh, in the end notes, which came into the 25th anniversary edition and have stayed ever since, uh, the end notes cover a lot of ground that was not covered in the in the original paperback edition. So, oh wow, see I would. The end- I never would have known that. Like even looking looking at the chapter list, I never would have known that because I've never been the guy to look at the end of the book. Uh, you know, and I'm like, I don't want to find out the butler did it. I want to find out. I, no, w- I want the story to get up there. You know, what I mean, spent <laughs> a lot of trouble writing those end notes and putting putting them in the text. <laughs> See the bracket that says one or two or six in the you know in the text. Flip to the back of the book and look it up and read it. Nice. Yeah, I'll definitely do. I don't. I don't think uh, my Kindle version really has that. Like, I think I think it has it in the back, but I don't think they have the little like aspirics or, or whatever. Or it might just be my Kindle, as old as it is. But uh, 
No, absolutely. I'm definitely going to be digging into this, and I look forward to the next time we sit down and talk to each other. So that way I can talk a little more about the book itself. Um, But until then, Mr. Gottlieb, it has been an absolute pleasure and a blast. I'm happy that you are feeling better from uh, from the thing. I wasn't going to mention the heart attack, but I since since it was brought up, I do. uh, You know, I I definitely want to express my my relief in knowing that you are doing a lot better and just as lively as you can be. And I, the only thing I got to disagree with you is I don't think you got 10, 15 years in you. I, I'm betting on another 30 to 40. So. That would make me 110, which is a little, I think too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll settle for 95 to 100. There you go. We'll, we'll go with that. We'll split the difference. <laughs> but until then, guys, I want to thank my guests very, very much for coming on, Carl. It's been an absolute honor. Uh, and for you guys listening to the podcast here, of course, if you enjoyed this podcast on YouTube, hit that thumbs up button, like, share, comment, subscribe, check out all the other podcasts of Breaking the Fourth Wall. And of course, if you prefer your podcast in audio only format, we got you covered. Just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And guys, I will catch you on the next Breaking the Fourth Wall podcast. Have a good night, guys. Hey, guys, it's Chris from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts that can be found on Realm of the Mist Entertainment's YouTube channel or our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming, for all your tabletop needs. And if you prefer your podcasts in audio-only format, check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. To our Patreon supporters, we thank you very, very much. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the mist. And just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode.